Live from the Pacific Northwest, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. Real. True. Stories. May the narrative be with you. So most of you know me as a storyteller, right? That's, that's people associate me with that, and especially those of you who have come to see the Armchair Adventurer Show uh, associate me with that. In fact, you know, several times a week I'll just be walking down the street in my neighborhood and some guy on a bicycle coming towards me will shout out, you're that, that Ernest Shackleton guy. So I guess that's what I am, I'm the Ernest Shackleton guy. But for the last 25 years, I have also had a career as a paralegal. And that's been an important part of who I am, too. Now, it's not like, you know, when I was a little kid, I was like, gee, I want to grow up and be a paralegal, right? <clears throat> I actually grew up and I was a woodworker. I was the hippie cabinet maker. That was my, my label. And then I had a serious back injury and I had to retrain to do a sedentary occupation. And almost by accident, I fell into this paralegal gig. But when I started the paralegal thing, I had no idea how well it would suit me and how much I would like it and how important it would become. And the paralegal gig kind of became like this almost alter ego for me, right? It was like my Clark Kent persona, right? Mild-mannered paralegal by day, super storyteller by night. <laughs> so over the 25 or more years that I've done the paralegal thing, I've worked on a lot of very, very interesting cases. But there's one that really stands out that I want to tell you about because I wasn't so much the mild-mannered paralegal, I was kind of the super paralegal in this one case. <clears throat> this was about 15 years ago, and the case came to us. Um, I'll never forget the day that my boss came in and dumped this case on my desk. It was huge. It was two big banker's boxes filled with files and folders and notebooks and papers, and he, he dumped them on my desk, and he said, Lawrence, See if you can make some sense of this. See if you can figure out what happened and why. Well, it was a wrongful death case on behalf of the family of a man named Bob Sharp. And Bob Sharp was in his 30s and a little bit down on his luck, and he was working as an unskilled laborer, construction worker kind of guy, helping a man build a house down in the Grants Pass area in a little town called Merlin, and he was working for five bucks an hour under the table. <clears throat> and in the course of working for this guy, Bob Sharp had, had gotten himself electrocuted. They had found him at the base of a 40-foot extension ladder that was set up against the power pole, and it was obvious that he had touched the live electricity up at the transformer at the top of the pole and that had fried him and killed him instantly, and he was found dead at the base of the, of the ladder. And my job was to try and figure out how that happened and what he was doing up there, and, and, and you know whether it was just an accident or whether it was somebody's fault. Well, in this pile, this huge file, these couple of banker's boxes, there were two great big three-ring binder notebooks. 
and they were the OSHA investigation. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration had been all over this case. And they had done a very thorough investigation, and there were all kinds of photographs in there, including the photograph of Bob Sharp lying there dead at the base of the ladder. And that was a, that was a tough picture to have to see. Looking at that picture, it became obvious to me that poor Bob Sharp didn't know a damn thing about electricity. And I'll tell you why. Bob Sharp had apparently attempted to ground his ladder. He had taken a huge metal screwdriver and he had stuck it into the earth at the base of the ladder. And then he had taken a, a jumper cable, like you would jump your battery in your car, and he had clipped one end of that to the metal blade of the screwdriver and the other end to one of the rungs of the aluminum ladder, thinking that somehow that would ground the ladder and the electricity would flow through the jumper cable into the earth instead of through his body. So it was obvious to me that Bob Sharp was not an electrician type guy. What was he doing up there? Well, he was connecting the main power source, the electricity, to this brand new house that they were building on the cheap down there in Berlin. I can't even remember the name of the guy who was building the house. I just call him the defendant. And that's, that's what he was to me uh, as the paralegal working the case. But, you know, looking at this, this jury-rigged setup that Bob Sharp had made there, it, I, I really started to... to identify with him because it made me remember that one night when I was 17 years old and I had spent the night under my aluminum canoe in a fearsome lightning storm in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York, just wishing that I had paid more attention in ninth grade earth science when they taught us about electricity and thinking, well, I'm lying on the ground, so does that mean I'm grounded? I mean, like, is that, do you want to, are you supposed to touch the ground? Or do you want to get up off the ground? Am I in a safe place? Am I in the most dangerous place I could possibly be at this moment? I didn't know, and obviously neither did poor Bob Sharp. <clears throat> I also developed a real affinity for Bob Sharp's mom. As we went on, I started to really um, care about her and really feel for her. I suspected very strongly that there had been some very fishy business going on. I suspected that the defendant, the man who was building this house on the cheap, had sent Bob Sharp up there to, to connect the electricity you know, without notifying the power company. And part of that was because his mom had told me that the night before he died, Bob had called her on the telephone. And he had said, you know, Mom, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of scared. The, the boss, he's making me do some kind of dangerous stuff. And she had said, well, Bob, just don't do it. Don't do it. And he had said, well, Mom, I, I, I kind of have to, you know. If I, if I don't, he'll fire me. And there's a half a dozen other guys who would be willing to step in and take my crappy $5 an hour under the table job. And, you know, I need the money. I, 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 can't, I can't really say no. And she had said, well, okay, Bobby, you just be careful. And he had said that he would, but the next day he was dead. <clears throat> the interesting circumstance about the case was that we couldn't really question 
the defendant, because in between the time that Bob Sharp had died and the time the case had come to me, the defendant had died as well, of totally unrelated causes. But there was no way I was going to put him on the witness stand and ask him tough questions and have him break down and confess like they do on Perry Mason, right? That just was not, not going to happen. <clears throat> There was one more piece of information in the OSHA file that I thought was really significant. And that was that the 40-foot the ladder that, that Bob Sharp had leaned up against the power pole, that didn't belong to the defendant. He had rented it the day before Bob Sharp had died from Grant's Pants Rental. There it is, I said it, Grant's Pants. <laughs> <laughs> Always happens, right? Grant's Pants, my favorite place in Oregon. <laughs> so it was a 40-foot extension ladder, and the transformer, where they had been trying to connect to the electricity, was 39 and a half feet up off the ground at that point. Coincidence? I rather thought not. Now, the defendant, while he was still alive, had given a sworn statement to the OSHA investigators. They had said, well, why did you rent that 40-foot ladder? I know you had, you know, a couple 20-foot ladders in your garage. Why? And he had said, oh, we rented that to paint the peak of the house. It's, it's very tall. Now, I had some photographs of the house, and I could see the peak, but I, I had no way to scale it, and I, I just really didn't know how tall it was. I had no way to evaluate the truth or falsity of that statement. But the defendant had told a, a, a crazy story. He had told the OSHA investigators that the day Bob Sharp died was a Sunday, and that Bob had arrived at the job site in the morning, and that he, Mr. Defendant, had said, Bob, it's Sunday, I got nothing for you today go home and come back tomorrow and, and I'll have some work for you. And that Bob Sharp had, had left and then unbeknownst to Mr. Defendant, Bob Sharp, for some reason, had gotten out the 40-foot ladder that they had rented the day before and he had pulled it up to its full extension and leaned it up against the power pole and climbed up there and electrocuted himself. And I thought, you lying sack of shit. <laughs> that is such horseshit, and I know it, but how am I gonna prove it, right? How am I gonna prove it? The guy is dead, he's got a sworn statement, that's an exception to the hearsay rules, so that's coming into evidence. How am I gonna prove that this is a lie? And it was all on me, right? There was nobody else in the office working on this case, nobody who cared about it. And I, I had started to care very deeply about Bob Sharp and especially about his mom. So I went to my office manager and I begged him to get me a little bit of budget to go down there myself to Grant's Pants and look at this thing with my own eyes. And he said, okay, we'll have to do it on the cheap, but we'll, you know, we'll push you up for a night at Motel 6. And so I, I jumped in my van and I drove down there to Grant's Pass. I rented a 40-foot ladder at, at Grand's Pass Rental. I spent the night at Motel 6, and the next morning, I drove out to the site where, where this had happened. Now, of course, in the meantime, they had finished the house, and somebody was renting it and living in it, and they were not connected to the defendant or his family. So there was no adversity. They were very 
friendly. They were happy to see me. And I, I drove up and I got out. They came out to greet me and I started untying the 40-foot ladder that I had up on the roof rack of my, of my van. And they said, well, what, what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, we're going to go up and measure the peak of the house. And they said, oh, you don't need the 40-foot ladder. It's, it's not nearly that tall. So they took me into the garage where there were two 20-foot extension ladders that had obviously belonged to the defendant because they had his name spray-painted on one of the rungs. And we took one of them out and we put it up against the peak of the house and it came up almost to that peak. And I climbed up that ladder and I took my tape measure and I pulled it out until the tip of it touched the ground and I held it up to the peak and the peak of the house was right at 21 feet. Did I tell you that I don't really like ladders? I'm not very good on ladders. I, I feel very nervous. And, and the only way that I could really do ladders is if I hang on tight with both hands, right? But I stood there on the ladder and I held my tape measure up and I pulled out my little Canon SureShot camera. And now, of course, I've, I've got neither hand on the ladder and I have to kind of lean back a little bit so I can get this all in the picture. But I managed to snap a picture showing that the peak of the house is only 21 feet. And this, of course, proves the lie because the defendant was such a cheap son of a bitch that there's no way he would have rented a 40-foot ladder to do a job that he already had a ladder that was adequate for. I drove back up to Portland the very next day. I took my film, you guys remember film, right? To the photomat. <clears throat> And we had doubles printed, and I took one of those pictures showing the peak of the house and the tape at 21 feet, and I put it in an envelope, and I sent it to the defendant's attorneys. Now, I have to tell you that all along, from the very beginning, those attorneys had told me that this was a no-offer case. They were not going to settle this case. They were not going to offer me a penny to settle this case because they felt there was no exposure, no liability, we'll see you in court. I didn't even write a letter, a cover letter saying, this picture proves, I just sent them the photograph and the next day that defense attorney called me up and he said, um, so are you guys maybe interested in talking about settling this case? <laughs> And of course, we were interested in settling that case. And of course, we did settle that case rather advantageously. And we got some money for poor old Barb Sharp, Bob, for poor old Bob Sharp's mother. Wow, say that three times fast. <clears throat> and of course, we couldn't bring her son back to life, but we did achieve some kind of a measure of justice for her. That's the only remedy that we have when someone's negligence causes a death wrongfully. And I felt like I had done a really good thing. I felt like I had championed someone who really needed my help. I felt like I had achieved a measure of justice and I felt like I had exposed the lie. And it was just one of those moments where I really did feel like superhero paralegal and, and all was right with the world and I felt like I, I did a good thing. So, <clears throat> that was 15 years ago. 
But this case has been coming to mind very often for me frequently, and I think it's because just a few months ago, my career as a paralegal kind of came to an abrupt and unexpected halt. The law firm where I've been working for the last 10 years is winding down and, and closing out their case list, and my job was cut, and I have been unemployed for the last several months, and I wasn't ready for that, you know. I, the paralegal gig was really important to me. It made me feel smart, it made me feel valuable, it made me feel like I had something to contribute to society. And I have to say that in the few months since my job ended, I've put out a lot of feelers, but I haven't really gotten much in the way of freelance work or assignments or anything. So I decided that I would tell this story and I would send this story out into the world. <clears throat> and if there's anybody out there listening in the audience tonight, or anybody out there watching this story a few weeks from now on YouTube, <clears throat> who maybe could use a person of my talents, <laughs> I would like to add a little message to the story, and the message is, have ladder, will travel. 